On behalf of Capital Inc. and Nicolas Bornozis, and I would like to welcome you all to uh, this um, panel discussion session. Uh, this panel is on the topic of offshore wind in uh, the Jones Act space. Offshore wind is an area of activity that is very uh, much developing, uh, big opportunities and growth potential. And uh, we are really privileged to have with us a stellar panel uh, of major industry participants. I will let uh, Alice Colarossi uh, from Reed Smith, uh, who is going to be the moderator to introduce our panelists. I'd like to simply say thank you, Alice and Reed Smith for uh, moderating the panel. And of course, thank you to Joshua, Eleni, Robert and Jeff for joining. And uh, Alice, the floor is yours uh, with my thanks to all of you. Thank you so much, Nicholas, for the introduction. And good morning and welcome everyone to the Offshore Wind and Jones Act panel. So yes, I have four great panelists with me today to discuss the Jones Act and the US offshore wind sector, a very interesting and timely topic. Just in the last year, there was an amendment to the US Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act and several CBP rulings that have clarified the extent to which the Jones Act applies to offshore wind support vessels. This is all part of the landscape for an industry that is really emerging and already booming in the US, as our panelists will tell us. So I'd like to give them the floor and ask each of them to introduce themselves and their companies and tell us just a few words about what they do in the US offshore wind sector. Um, Joshua, would you like to start? Sure, no problem. Um, good morning, everyone. My name is Josh Shapiro with Liberty Green Logistics. Uh, Liberty Green Logistics is a consortium approach to providing a supply chain for offshore wind, uh, where the Liberty Group is uh, co-partnering and co-investing with our consortium members uh, for end-to-end -end supply chain solutions for offshore wind. Thank you. Eleni, could you please introduce yourself? Good morning. My name is Eleni Baco. I'm the Senior Vice President for Offshore Wind at Great Lakes Dredge and Dock Company. I uh, joined GLDD uh, almost a year ago to um, uh, lead the entry into the uh, U.S. offshore wind market. And uh, it's been a very exciting uh, ride uh, over the past year with uh, a lot of great administration support for offshore wind. And uh, as a company, we've accomplished a lot, including uh, designing and, and contracting to build the first uh, U.S. Jones Act subsea rock installation vessel in the, in the country. So I'm very proud of what we've accomplished in the past year. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Jeff, how about yourself? Yeah, thank you, Alice. Um, my name is Jeff Andrini. I'm the vice president of Crowley's new energy division and heading up the, uh, the offshore wind business. Um, we are a full service turnkey provider for offshore wind participating in the transportation of uh, components and foundations to assist on the installation, um, the ownership of terminals for both marshalling and, uh, and O&M, um, the build out, the operation of SOVs and CTVs and then finally, um, providing uh, training programs, workforce development, uh, with the assistance of our GWO partner, Rely on New Tech. Thank you, Jeff. And last but not least, Robert. 
Thank you, Alice. Uh, good to be here. Uh, my name is Robert Galinsky. I'm the uh, offshore wind director for DNV, looking after the Americas. Um, a little bit about DNV. We've been involved with offshore wind since it became a scalable concept back in the 80s, and we are involved in over 97% of the world's uh, offshore wind projects. Um, DNV is also market leader in class of SOVs with over 80% market share. Uh, and we're the first class society to develop uh, standards for WTIVs uh, as well. Uh, we've got 125 years uh, in the US with over, over 2,500 people uh, strong. And we're very proud to, to, to be able to be involved in this uh, local market as well. And good to be here. Thank you, Robert. So my first question is, in early 2021, as you all know, the Biden administration announced a very ambitious goal of deploying 30 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. I believe that we are currently nowhere close to that, that number, but they are, there is a very large number of um, offshore wind farm projects that are at different stages in the bidding and the approval process, especially along the East Coast. So my question is, can we meet the Biden administration 3030 goal. Um, and maybe Robert, you can take this one. Uh, sure, it's it's a good question. You know, uh, in, in my view, the 30 by 30 is, is a sign of the um, energy transition that the US has committed to. Mm -hmm. And it's also an important catalyst for electrifying uh, key services, right? Uh, I think we all agree on that. Um, the pace of the progress since the target's been announced uh, has been very promising. Uh, and we certainly see commitment across the entire value chain uh, to see this through. So that's, that's, that's the good side uh, of the news, right? Uh, the biggest challenge that I see is our ability to effectively commercialize offshore wind. So subsidies, of course, play a big role, but ultimately I expect investment from private equity firms and uh, from within key stakeholder organizations as well to be driving the capital injection. And this is, of course, already happening with developers and ship owners investing in a major way. Um, the regulatory framework uh, related to leasing and permitting is another uh, kind of area that caused some delays. Uh, but with more leases coming online this year, I'm sure that the bidders uh, and the regulator alike will be keen to streamline this process. So having said all that, uh, as long as the commitment from the federal government and uh, private companies remains the same, uh, from my uh, point of view, I'm very confident that the target will be met in time. Well, that's great to hear. And look, you've touched upon several challenges and, and we'll discuss those challenges further during this panel session. I guess the first one that I wanted to discuss with everyone today is um, the challenge that are posed by local content requirements. Um, and the tension between, I mean, that uh, strong federal support for offshore wind projects and the, the local content requirements that, that can be challenging, um, especially when they are applied to vessels, because vessels are regulated um, on a national basis and local content rules may not be easily achievable. So I wanted to hear from, from the panel on how the industry is addressing this challenge, the local content requirements challenge. Um, yeah, and any views you have on, on this question? Um, sure, I guess I'll, I'll try and jump in on this. So, so, so I think local content can be broken down um, into different verticals. 
Um, and so, for example, we can start with manufacturing. So by creating manufacturing facilities in states that are having offtake and purchase power purchase agreements for offshore wind uh, creates firstly development uh, and economic activity and thereafter local and sustainable jobs at those manufacturing facilities. Uh, connecting that to waterfront terminals, which is an essential part of the offshore wind supply chain, um, that creates more infrastructure development opportunities and then furthers uh, shoreside stevedoring and various uh, specialized and skilled jobs for uh, labor, which as we've seen a directionist and then at least the mid-Atlantic is turning towards unionized labor. Um, and then uh, lastly, you've got the assets in the waterborne assets uh, and that local content gets a little bit more complicated because you have uh, regionalized areas where shipbuilding capabilities are greater than others. And you can't have every vessel for each and every project built in the specific state of that project. So I look at that local content as more of a specialized and regionalized area. Um, but it is certainly possible to uh, achieve local content through these different verticals throughout these offshore wind farms, which will create a, a ton of uh, economic activity in the states and regions where this wind is currently being developed. Thank you, Joshua. Um, I was hoping maybe to hear from Eleni on this topic because she mentioned in her introduction that uh, Great Lakes is in the process of, of, of building the Jones Act vessel. Have you been dealing with local content issues and can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I see local content as really an opportunity just like the states do to increase economic activity in the states. Um, specifically, let me, uh, uh, we are creating economic activity with shipbuilding, for example, in the state of Pennsylvania. The, the Philly shipyard is starting to uh, construction on our new vessel. So that constitutes uh, local content, absolutely. Uh, when, when we start operating in the East Coast, depending on the uh, project and the state where uh, the, the PPA is, is from, we would be doing uh, the rock supply chain from that particular state. For example, the quarry that produces the rock for the rock installation, the logistics, the, the stevedoring, the loading, all of this is, is creating a lot of local economic activity in addition to uh, uh, servicing the vessel, the fueling, the bunkering and everything, you know, there, there's uh, also other related activities that will, will happen in the state. So I do see this as a big opportunity for the states to uh, um, gain from all of this economic activity that offshore wind will bring to our shores. Uh, and and uh, we welcome it, and and we we're trying to support it with our our own investment in in the mar in this market, and uh, making sure that uh, the states uh, participate, and and we we utilize uh, local content as much as possible. Yeah. Let me let me add to that real quick. I I agree with what Josh and, and Eleni are saying, and and we are in the midst of, of um, several contracts right now, uh, one with an SOV um, where local content is, is at a premium. Um, and with our vessels, you know, the tugs that we'll be using uh, to be able to transport components and foundations and secondary steel for installation, 
um, working together with the unions. Um, we certainly envision uh, having uh, local mariners on board those vessels. However, I, I look at it a little bit different. Um, I would much rather see a more domestic content than just local. Having domestic content is going to make the process that much more economical and efficient uh, for the entire nation. The ability to pull in uh, folks from the Gulf of Mexico who have a tremendous amount of knowledge in, in offshore operations, um, something that's very similar to the, um, uh, the, the power act that they have in the mid-Atlantic where the states of Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina are all working together in order to provide for offshore wind. That's what I would like to see. And I think that's what the industry needs in order to be more efficient and in order to be more economical. That doesn't mean that we won't support local content. To the contrary, we do today, especially with the, the growing workforce um, in New York and in Massachusetts and also in the mid-Atlantic. But it's our opinion and I think a lot of, uh, of others, and I'd be interested to hear, you know, some of the comments from perhaps Josh and, and Robert and Laney on that whole domestic content concept, because I think that's the way we should truly be looking at this instead of very um, singularly by state, by state, by state. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. Um, I do think in the first instance, when it comes to the manufacturing facilities, um, that you can't put a, a windmill blade manufacturing facility in each and every state. And so we have to, as I mentioned the word, more regionalized. Um, but I wouldn't disagree with uh, Jeff about we also need to recognize and look at our workforce and look at what expertise we have in the United States, oil and gas for sure in our United States Gulf. Uh, we have a lot of assets and resources there in terms of our power and workforce. We also um, are this world's second largest uh, onshore wind producer uh, behind China. And there's an entire workforce there that's not necessarily from coastal states uh, that's accessible to us as well. So when we come to this uh, local content, or as Jeff is describing, domestic content, this is why I personally break this down into verticals between manufacturing ports and terminals, marine assets, and then the, the, the workforce at large must be domestic. Um, and of course, there are many efforts going on in workforce development uh, to bring that workforce to these uh, wind farms. Um, in, in addition to where Crowley is working with different entities, um, Liberty Green is also working on developing um, an offshore wind certificate course online, uh, partnered with SUNY Maritime University in that to uh, help bring that workforce to become local content um, because these individuals will relocate. So I would definitely agree uh, with where Jeff was going about using the resources that we have existing in this country already. Thank you, Josh, and thanks, Jeff. Eleni, would you like to react to that concept of domestic content? Yeah, uh, the issue here uh, for, for people who are not uh, fully familiar with it is mm -hmm. that uh, the way local content is, is defined uh, uh, in, in the offshore wind market is more like st statewide uh, uh, local content. Uh, for some of uh, the companies that are uh, marine related companies like, uh, like ours, uh, uh, the vessel goes from state to state to state. So, um, 
we would like to benefit uh, from, from building a vessel in, in Pennsylvania, in, in the Philly shipyard, and we would like that to be considered uh, domestic uh, mm-hmm. content for these projects, uh, regardless of whether it's uh, Massachusetts or Pennsylvania or, or New York in this case, because the vessels travel all, all along the East Coast. So I agree with the point as, as well. Uh, but I, I think the, the biggest uh, carrot here is to uh, create economic activity in all of the eastern states, uh, in the east coast states, uh, uh, and, and how we account for it as local or domestic content, uh, you know, comes next, but uh, creating the activities is the uh, carrot and the, and the big goal here. Sure. And so you, you just mentioned all the Eastern states, and I think it's my understanding that the local content requirements have been especially applied on the East Coast, uh, unless on the West Coast. And I guess this links to, I mean, another area I wanted to discuss with you is like the different pace at which the offshore wind industry is developing in the, in the different coastal regions in the United States. The fact that the East Coast seems to be uh, well, is clearly, I mean, developing much faster, but the West Coast might be catching up. So my question here is, um, should we expect the, the West Coast to, to catch up with the East Coast in the in a close future? And, and what explains the somewhat slower development of the West Coast so far in that sector? Awesome, I'm happy to take that. Um, sure. So we... We are, we are very much involved in what's going on on the West Coast. I think as most people know, Crowley was, was founded over 129 years ago in San Francisco. Um, so, so we have a, a very um, unique interest in, in seeing the success of offshore wind, not only in the state of California, but Oregon, Washington, and Hawaii as well. Um, you know, the challenges that we see uh, in uh, on the west coast is one you're, you're not installing fixed you're installing floating and as I think most people are aware that's more just in a project stage right now than uh, than anything else the other thing that's very interesting is you know on the east coast you have as I'm sure everybody is aware you know anybody who has a postage stamp uh, of uh, of terminal space wants to raise their hand and be involved in O&M or uh, some level of marshalling. And that's not the case on the West Coast where there's really only four designated areas right now. And all of them have their challenges from Port Wainimi to uh, Diablo Canyon to Eureka to, uh, to Coos Bay. But we ourselves see a, a tremendous opportunity um, to be able to come in and be a, a terminal provider similar to what we're doing today in the, uh, the city of Salem, Massachusetts with our anchor tenant, um, Avangrid. We also see uh, another opportunity that uh, I think is, is not being talked about a lot, but it's the design of the, the uh, anchor handling tugboat that's gonna be needed um, with some type of alternative fuel source as a power. And um, so that's the areas that, that we are currently attacking right now. And, and feel that we are really on the foundation of, uh, of building West Coast wind and also you know, eventually using that same template for the Gulf of Mexico as well. And, and just adding a little bit to what Josh is saying on the workforce side, being able to establish that, um, <clears throat> that training center, the workforce development, 
not only in the state of California, but in the state of Oregon, that's gonna be required to support the floating wind market. Yeah, I, I would add as a, as a general summary from a West Coast perspective, um, you know, deeper water comes with bigger challenges. You know, we're talking about 2000 feet deep off of Morrow Bay. Um, and, and it also comes with some higher costs. The good news in all of this uh, is that there are technical developments going on now in these demonstration projects for floating wind that are indicating that they could meet the price levels targeted by California for its energy pricing and offtake. And that I think is another factor that we have to think about here. It's a slightly different business um, with different assets being used uh, for the floating side of the business. And of course that Cree has a different cost structure. And so at the end of the day, this all becomes about the efficiency of energy that uh, American citizens are consuming and the pricing of that energy being affordable enough. Um, and so I think that plays into how the West Coast uh, is coming, but it's not where the East Coast or Mid-Atlantic region has been uh, because it's a slightly different uh, performance product. And to, to, to Josh's point uh, as well, so, you know, I, I wouldn't really call it catching up. It's just a different landscape on the West Coast than it is on the East Coast. Uh, and it requires a different approach. Um, if you take the bottom fixed offshore wind, uh, you know, on such a scale as we're seeing now in the US, this is fairly new, but we can bring in lessons learned from Europe and other places in terms of floating wind. Uh, you know, it's becoming more mainstream and we don't have as much experience with it yet. So, uh, you know, to that point, those projects will have to be uh, optimized quite quickly. The designs will have to be optimized quickly and the O&M activities will have to also be adjusted to suit. And to Jeff's point about anchor handlers, for example, you know, you talk about anchor spread and mooring lines and, and shared uh, anchors, et cetera. It's actually a very complicated installation process, you know, so it will have to be looked at in detail. Um, and really, you know, now with the leases expected mid-year uh, on the West Coast, uh, we're already seeing yards and ports and manufacturing facilities gearing up for that. Uh, and also, you know, developers and vessel owners interacting with the uh, local ocean users and the local population as well to make sure that uh, everybody's comfortable with the concept that's going to be developed there over the next few years. I agree with everything that's been said so far and, and augment that uh, there needs to be some more work on the technology side for the floating offshore wind. Um, and that will allow to ec the economics of the floating offshore wind to uh, make sense for commercial development. And um, specifically, for example, the technologies that are being looked at uh, right now uh, may not be um, uh, just wind, maybe may a combination of uh, wind and wave energy um, uh, to, to um, uh, increase the uh, output, the, the power output from uh, each uh, platform. So there is some technology challenges. Uh, and, and once these are resolved, then uh, the economics will, will start looking better. And, and uh, it, it takes a little bit of time to get to that point. Uh, even Europe is, uh, is now um, increasing their floating uh, offshore wind farms and, and uh, getting into new technologies and new frontiers. Um, uh, per personally, I have done a floating offshore wind technology uh, uh, program in the North Sea a couple of years ago. So there is still quite a bit of work that needs to be done uh, for the economics to be where they need to be. Yeah. Thank you. And so, so far our discussion had been very focused on the US market, but 
you both of you, Eleni and Robert, in your in your latest interventions, you, you refer to the European markets and the fact that there's lessons to be learned from them. And I guess this connects to another topic that I wanted to discuss with you, which is the important role that seems to be played by European American partnerships in the US markets. Um, and those partnerships combine, um, I mean, American expertise and Jones Act compliance with uh, European experience. In your views, are these partnerships built to last or is that a transitional phase as a, the, that is due to the different pace and development between the US and, and the American, the, the American and the European markets so far in the offshore wind sector? Maybe I can weigh in quickly as a third sure. party here. Um, the way we see it, the current partnerships uh, are basically forged not only due to common goals, but also very often due to common uh, values. Mm -hmm. So I, I fully expect that these continue to, uh, to flourish uh, and do so very strongly over the next de uh, decades. Um, the European developers uh, have made it very clear that they are here to stay, but stay whilst contributing to the US economy, right? Through investment and engagement of local workforce. And we see the same uh, partnerships on the vessel side. You know, uh, there's a lot of European ship owners wanting to enter the US market. Uh, and therefore, they create these partnerships with the well-established US companies. Um, but some of my fellow panelists here, of course, will, have, will be better suited to elaborate on this than, than I can. But I certainly see a positive and long-lasting uh, uh, collaborations there. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo what, what Robert is saying. I, I... Um, I think, as, as everybody knows, Crowley has a, a partnership with, uh, with ESVAT, who is uh, today the number one provider of SOVs in the UK and, and in, uh, in Europe. And, and that was a strategical relationship. Um, and as Robert mentioned, they aligned perfectly with Crowley's um, values and, and culture. That was the, the main thing that we looked at when we got started in that relationship. Um, it has been more than just for us an, an opportunity to get together with somebody who, um, who has the technical expertise in, in being able to build, design, and operate a, a vessel. It's also paved the way for other relationships um, that we didn't have when we got started in this business a couple of years ago. I, I think slowly over time, there's going to be this level of transition that's going to come from Europe over the United States. But I do agree with Robert. Um, we, we very much hope that the relationship between Esvat and, and Crowley continues um, you know, for, for many, many years ahead as we look to design um, O&M SOVs in the, uh, in the marketplace. But I, I truly believe eventually, and I do think we need to um, take more of a leadership role as we move on into the future, be that with vessel design, be that with training, workforce development. A lot of that today is in Europe, but once you get those lessons learned, we should be able to take the leading role moving forward in the development of offshore wind in the United States. So we have uh, at Liberty Green a, a, a slightly different approach, although I agree with aligning on values and that there will be some transition towards a say a dedicated American vertical of the business. Um, Liberty Green Logistics is a consortium business. So uh, we currently have 15 consortium members ranging from uh, unionized labor uh, straight through to European entities that are 
very active in the offshore wind business, as well as uh, one individual Asian conglomerate active in wind. Um, and so for us, it is a co-partnering and co-investing approach um, where we are completely aligned with our consortium partners and make investments together in different verticals of the offshore wind supply chain. Um, we're hoping that that leads the vertical to remain in place for a long period of time um, because we're aligning our interests at the beginning. Um, we also have a structure in our consortium where it is a, a fee list consortium. So it is a free to enter upon invitation and it is uh, free to exit. And therefore partners can come in and out for different projects depending on uh, their business outlook or their expected return profile. Thank, thank you. Um, look, it's great to hear about all these, this alignment between American and European interests in these partnerships. Um, I wanted to also talk about the differences between the European and the American markets and what we do differently here in the US. And I guess one aspect is that very much because of the Jones Act um, in the US, offshore wind projects tend to be structured around the use of Jones Act qualified feeder vessels, which bring turbines and components from the shore to installation vessels, and this allows the use of non-Jonesac qualified installation vessels, which do not move on and remain offshore. And I guess on the other hand, in Europe, it is more common to use um, installation vessels that both carry and install the turbines. Um, so what people refer to as the US feeder solution, in your view, is that temporary or is that a viable long-term alternative to the use of Jones Act qualified installation vessels to both carry and install the turbines. And of course, the background here is that today there is no Jones Act qualified um, WTIV installation vessel. Could I kick us off again? Because um, I know that uh, I'm sure there's more details, uh, but in, from a general perspective, um, mm -hmm. uh, for an existing uh, WTIVs uh, in combination with a Jones Act feeder option uh, is certainly a proven alternative, right? We've seen it being used already. Uh, but I did say on other panels, and I stand by what I said, is that for that to be a viable option, uh, the cost of construction and complexity of the feeder design needs to be controlled. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, in addition to being able to bring a foreign flag installation vessel, you actually have to be, uh, it has to make sense to build these feeder vessels. Um, I have seen the appetite for Jones Act installation vessels dwindle a little bit in the, uh, in the light of the feeder option being quite well established. Uh, this is, of course, there, now there's no Jones Act installation vessels capable of installing the size of turbines we're talking about. Uh, but I think as more projects apply the feeder option with success, uh, we will see that become more mainstream as well. Uh, the cost of a Jones Act installation vessel is a major issue for vessel owners, uh, and without long-term contractual commitments from, from developers, uh, it's a very high-risk uh, investment. Uh, on the other hand, the demand for the installation vessels globally is on the rise as well. So we shouldn't assume that whenever we're ready, we'll have our pick of a foreign flag installation vessel to come in and just do the installation. Um, so I think establishing a local uh, Jones Act uh, fleet of installation vessels is important, but I would be more conservative on the numbers uh, of these vessels uh, being built this decade than I was in the past. I, I would agree with everything that, that Robert said. I, I've seen 
estimates of up to five to six WTIVs. And I think that's um, rather excessive at anywhere between 500 and $600 million. And as Robert accurately pointed out, um, with really no guarantees on, uh, on contracts attached to them. Um, I think as everybody is aware, you know, we, we are the, one of the primary um, uh, feedering companies uh, in the United States. Um, the fact, you know, that we have the, the majority of the tugs and barges puts us in a, an advantageous position um, right now. Um, we feel that, uh, that the process can be uh, and will be successful. Um, we have been very fortunate uh, to, to already um, have a couple of, uh, of jobs um, that we have contracted and we'll get started with in, uh, in April of, of 2023. I, I also agree with Robert that um, people are waiting to see whether or not it's gonna be successful. And, and if so, then the next step will be others will jump in. And, and that's when you'll start seeing the capital buildup. But right now, um, you know, even ourselves, we, we are standing pat with, with the amount of equipment that we have and, um, and, and really looking to see, you know, how this plays out, you know, from 23 into uh, 25 and 26. And um, hopefully everything is successful. And, and then other equipment will join um, into the marketplace. And that could be, it could be tugs, it could be barges, it could be an entirely different solution. Um, but uh, there will need to be more assets, rest assured, uh, um, or we will, as a country, um, run out of equipment to be able to help do the installation by 2025, 2026, 2027. And then getting right. back to Alice, your original question about 30 for 30, uh, that will happen. <laughs> Absolutely. That's all I would I would pick up on that. I think you know the, the biggest thing that we've uh, seen in the marketplace is a pricing gap. Expectations uh, of financial commitments without secured contracting uh, for a five hundred million dollar asset become extremely hard for an entity to finance, let alone be interested in. And I think that as the industry matures, we will see hopefully financial pricing potentially become more competitive, but a bit more alignment between private companies and developers and OEMs of what their expectations are and what they're willing to pay given the uh, cabotage laws of the Jones Act here and what the construction costs are of these assets. With regard to the barge and feeder solution on the feeder vessels, building new feeder vessels, we see the same pricing gap today. The barge solution is just that much more competitive in today's current landscape. And that I think is one of the reasons why it's being pursued aside from availability. But lifting from a moving barge out at sea in the northeastern part of the United States uh, with the turbine sizes that we're talking about and the weather conditions we've experienced has not actually ever been done. And so I think for the initial projects where Crowley and others are involved, this comes down to a calculation of viability versus feasibility. It is certainly viable to do it. It's a question now of feasibility, and this really is the demonstration of the direction that we're going to take in the initial years uh, of how this is going to happen. But Jeff's point can't be understated. As these wind projects pick up, there needs to be more assets. It's a mathematical certainty that we're going to need to build out this fleet. And so if you just take WTIVs, for example, with 17 gigawatts in the pipeline, 
if that which is in control of approximately seven developers if one developer was to award three to four gigawatts to one entity that is enough to maintain operational employment on a wtiv for four to five years so when we start to think about that that gives that financial certainty which would allow uh, an entity like a Crowley or a Liberty to go out uh, and contract for these types of vessels at these high asset prices. And we haven't seen that certainty in the market. And that's why I think you've seen a big pullback in the Jones Act WTIV um, investing profile. Mm -hmm. okay. One more thing just to add to what Josh is actually a couple. Um, I, I would add further, even from a barge aspect, there needs to be some level of commitment for multiple projects in order for a barge and a tug to be built and be viable. Um, and the other thing, and this actually goes back a little bit to the, uh, the whole concept around local versus domestic content. To be clear, not every port is also going to be able to accommodate a WTIV. So you're not gonna be able to get a WTIV through the hurricane barrier in New Bedford um, there's going to be challenges in getting underneath the Verrazano Bridge in, uh, in New York. And, and so one of the reasons strategically that we got involved in the Port of Salem with Avangrid was the fact that there were no restrictions. There's no air draft. There's no water draft. You can get a ship there. You can get a WTIV. You can get a tug and barge. So there, there's a lot of different factors that play into it, but I, I agree wholeheartedly with what uh, Josh is saying is that um, right now, the amount of capital and the amount of commitment from the contractual side is like this. And until we, you know, close that gap, um, we're, we're going to continue to have these questions and concerns about um, are we going to be able to, to keep up with uh, the equipment needs and are we going to be able to keep up with the installation that's going to be required that again goes back to this whole concept of 30 great gigawatts by 2030. Thank you. Um, we're getting close to the end and I want to have a chance to ask the questions that were asked by the audience. And I see two questions, well the third just popped up, but the two first questions that were there, one, and I want to connect them both, one was about, so the question was, are there, are there enough ships to support the expanding offshore wind industry? And do you have an opinion on how many ships will be built in the years to come? And we've already discussed this um, in a way. The, the other question was on um, oil and gas on whether you see working with oil and gas services companies in terms of building and servicing offshore wind installations as an option. So I think a way to connect these two questions is, I mean, I think this shows the potential potential are the, the two options which are relying on new builds and relying on retrofits and the possibility of retrofitting oil and gas um, support vessels for the offshore wind sector. Um, which role do you, do you see um, retrofit vessels playing in the future? And, and especially, I guess, um, um, what's the potential of reusing oil and, oil and gas support vessels in the offshore wind sector? Let me take that real quick, Alice, because mm -hmm. I'm sure that Robert's got some things to say about this as well. But one of the things that I thought was um, really exciting for 2021 is the fact that uh, that Siemens um, awarded 
a construction SOV contract to Auto Candies um, for for three separate uh, three separate wind farms. That's the first indication that potentially the OEMs and maybe even the developers recognize that uh, that the United States does have sufficient assets if they are retrofitted properly with a walk tour and and other um, and other pieces of equipment that need to be added. Um, and so this will be a key test, not only for you know the oil and gas industry in the Gulf of Mexico, but in the United States. If this works, then, then I think it helps and it becomes much more economical and much more efficient than trying to build brand new. Because you're not going to build a construction SOV for a one-year project. And same thing with a CTV. You need to have those existing assets employed here in the United States to make that an efficient model. Thank you, Jeff. Were there any other reactions to that question? Uh, I, I do have a few thoughts. Uh, I, th I think Jeff makes an excellent point there. Uh, I, I do think that existing vessels could certainly fill the gap, uh, but I would say up to a point. And uh, the reason why I say that is that when you look at the existing uh, fleet, offshore vessel uh, fleet, they can certainly support in both commissioning and, and operational phase. And, but the retrofitting is, is what I'm concerned about in terms of the actual cost and whether it's cost effective for the owners to invest that much money uh, into something that they'll have to likely continuously uh, look after and upgrade as the requirements from the developers um, kind of expand, particularly on the emission control of the vessels. Uh, I mean, walk-to-work systems, um, extra accommodation, uh, you know, that's certainly things that we can, uh, we can accommodate. Uh, but, uh, you know, experience from other areas, uh, you know, at this stage is there's probably more appetite in the future for tailor-made uh, vessels because of that emission control reputation uh, that the entire value chain is, is pursuing. So, uh, you know, I would say that the time window to utilize conversions is probably limited to maybe two to five years, unless there's owners out there who are willing to invest more than your average retrofit uh, capex budget to uh, to invest into it, uh, because as the renewable industry aims uh, for significantly less uh, emissions over time, those new vessels um, will have to come in with new technologies, you know, and then effective complexities like battery hybrids, for example, ability to to recharge on uh, location while idle and so on. And those are all operational aspects that may be challenging for existing vessels. But as I said, I'm not closing the door on that because it really depends on how proactive and how willing the vessel owners are to invest in their existing fleets as opposed to building new vessels. I'm just just one, one, more one more thing to add to it uh, would be that uh, let's keep in mind that we're competing with uh, international vessels in, in terms of technology and efficiency and productivity of the vessels that work in these offshore wind farms. So anything that doesn't meet the specifications and cannot compete in, in itself is an issue. So retrofitting uh, with something uh, that's at the end of the day is not gonna be the latest uh, technology may not be as competitive, uh, both from an emissions standpoint and from a technology and, and functionality and, and workability standpoint. So those are issues that need to be considered. I'm not saying that retrofits cannot happen, 
but uh, they need uh, to be selective and uh, the end result needs to be competitive in the marketplace. I'm glad you said that, uh, Eleni. That's actually where I was going to jump in quickly and say we, ha we also have to look at the emissions side of the engine. And it looks like uh, not only do I agree with the panelists, but it, it seems like in short order, the use of existing assets is a short term solution. And we're looking at a 30 plus year industry here. Uh, for at least phase one of this industrial build out. And, you know, we need to have vessels that align with the emissions targets during that phase. Right, thank you. Um, so we're getting very close to the end. We had two questions from the panel that came. One was on the workforce, on the training of the workforce, and the other was on the, the port facilities uh, and whether it's, it needs to be fortified. Uh, we have only one minute left, so I don't know if anyone wants to add something in this respect, or otherwise we, we will just conclude. Any final we thoughts? Need more, we need more workers. <laughs> <laughs> we need way more workers. And uh, as far as what was the last one, Alice? Terminals? Yeah. Yeah, we need more terminals too. <laughs> All right. Well, this will be our final words. Um, <laughs> thank you very much for the, the great discussions. Thank you to everyone. And uh, yeah, this concludes our panel. Thank you for inviting us. Well, I'd like to say from my end, really tremendous panel. Alice, you've done a great job. And I can't thank enough our uh, panelists for joining. Uh, thank you, uh, Eleni. Uh, Robert, Jeff, and uh, Joshua, thank you very, very much uh, to uh, to all of you. Great panel. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Alice. Yeah.